It's wonderful to be able to share with you today as we're continuing our Christmas sermon series called Unlikely Advent, where as we prepare for Christmas, we look at the unlikely ways God's love and grace comes into the world through Jesus Christ. And today we're looking at a part of the Christmas story that we normally don't talk about, that we normally like to ignore, because it's the unlikely way that power works in God's kingdom. And it talks about the devastation that happens and the atrocities that happen when we operate by worldly views of power versus heavenly views of power. And we're going to be talking about King Herod and how King Herod used power. And once again, uh, when, you, when you hear the Christmas story, King Herod doesn't make the Hallmark movies. Well, we, 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 we don't like putting him in there. And when, when you have power, uh, you learn that power has significant consequences. And sometimes those cause us to, to take a step back and just catch our breath when we realize the consequences that our actions and our decisions can have. And it's my goal as senior pastor to always keep you in the loop about uh, decisions that are made here in the life of the church. And this morning I had to make a decision on behalf of the church. Normally decisions like this I like to have committees that help with or policies, but it was uh, something that had to be made very quick and I had to make it on your behalf. So I wanted to, to let you know about it. It was whether to welcome someone who wanted to, told us they wanted to come to church today, um, but they informed us of their history. And it's someone uh, with a history of losing control emotionally, of being emotionally unstable, uh, a history of saying inappropriate things in public, uh, a history in their worst moments uh, of uh, showing a tendency to become violent. Uh, and I had to decide, would this person be welcome here or not? Could, could they come? And I want you to know that uh, on your behalf, without your permission, I told them to come ahead to worship. And I want you to know that person was me. And that person's you, right? We don't like to think about it, but all of us have our moments where we're emotionally unstable. And all of us, if backed into a corner, if pressured to a certain degree, have the ability to completely lose control and even to become violent. That lives in each of us. I was talking to one of my kids recently and they we were talking, I, I guess the best way to describe the subject of this conversation would be, we were talking about standards of behavior. And uh, they said, you know, dad, how at church, like no matter what's going on, like we might know that you're irritated about something, but you just always smile and you're always calm. Um, wouldn't it be great if you were like that at home? <laughs> So I thought of the only appropriate response for a responsible parent in that moment. And what I said to her, I said, you know why I'm always calm at church? All those people make their beds. They all do. And they all brush their teeth without being asked. That, all of them. I, I, see, I see some people looking at each other. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I've, I've misinterpreted. But we know that from our families, from our personal relationships, from the situations we've been in. We all have a tendency, we can go down the wrong road. Uh, 
And actually, when we're looking at our darker side, we know there are times when we can make decisions that we know are unethical, but we can hide them and we can make them look ethical to everybody else because they come out better for us and nobody will ever know that we were on the inside and that we knew that they wouldn't come out good for this person, but they'd come out easier for us. So we just went ahead and let it happen. We all have have the tendency to do that. What we're going to complain about today about King Herod is a tendency, we would call it a sinful nature that lives within each of us. So I want to remind you of something, that when you're fighting a monster, the first step in defeating a monster is not to become a monster yourself. That's the first step whenever we fight monsters, is not to become a monster yourself. And uh, we, we see this in some of the great drama and literature of, of our day. In fact, whenever you turn on a good movie, whenever you read a great novel, all it is is an echo of the biblical story. All those great stories we have, they just take small elements of the biblical story and use them in new ways and set them in new characters and new times and uh, situ- situations. Uh, well, here at Concord, one of the things we pride ourselves on is we're a church where people of different political opinions can come together and serve God and love one another. You don't have to think exactly like us on every issue encountering our culture in order to be loved here, in order to be welcomed here, in order to have a place to serve. We love this. And so we work very hard because we believe that type of culture is in line with the gospel. We work very hard at that type of culture. And um, sometimes I just can't help myself. Sometimes I get in a group of people and I catch myself asking a politically provocative question without realizing it and, um, or without planning it. And so recently I was in a group of 35 to 45 year old males and I asked just a really controversial question. And, I, and for 35 to 40 years old males, this is the controversial question. Which Star Wars movie do you think is the best? Right, because they all have opinions. They've all got very strong opinions about that. And it's funny when you hear the answers. Because the answers to that question don't have to do with the heroes. It's the villains, right? It's the villains that determine if the drama is the best. And that's why uh, a lot of people think that the Star Wars movies with Darth Vader are the best ones. Because he's such a good villain, He's, he's, a good bad, he's a good bad guy because he used to be good. And then he went entirely to the dark side. And we see how bad he gets when he gives over to, to those impulses. And um, what we know about King Herod, King Herod didn't have to be bad. There was a moment in King Herod's life where King Herod made a decision. He made a decision about how he was going to use power. He, he made a decision about how he was going to use power to get everything for himself rather than for others. How he was going to use power to eliminate those who would threaten his power. And then we, we see where that road takes him. And we recognize we all have that ability to make that choice within ourselves. And so each day we, we try to make the better choice to follow Christ. And one of the ways we encourage you to do that each day is through the Bible reading plan at concordunited.org Bible or 
Uh, pick it up at our information center to read your Bible every day, to do the daily devotion every day, to say, God, show me how you use power and how Jesus used power uh, because I want to learn the unlikely way that Jesus used power, uh, not uh, the way that our world often use, uses power uh, that has such disastrous consequences. I was talking to a Sunday school class today and we were talking about the, the rulers at Jesus' time, Right? Who, who are the rulers when Jesus comes around? There's King Herod, who at that time was called King of the Jews. And who's the other ruler that Herod reports to? Caesar, right? Emperor Caesar. There's Caesar and Herod. And Caesar and Herod are all throughout the history books. And they are classic examples of political strongmen. And at the time, they seem to have more power than anyone else in the world. And what happens today, right? Today... Caesar sells pizza, right? <laughs> Herod runs casinos, and Jesus has over 2 billion followers. He's more powerful. But the way he uses power is very unlikely and very different. So we want to jump into the story. If you were uh, with us last week, we talked about the wise men, uh, also known as, as the Magi, and how they came. Uh, they were following the star. They, they looked for Jesus, and uh, they went to see Herod. And they told Herod what they had heard. And Herod says, hey, uh, go to Bethlehem, find this child, then tell me so I can worship him. Of course, that's not really what Herod meant. And we're, we're going to pick up right there. We're picking up with Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. How could Herod do that? I mean, that's genocide. That's, that's slaughtering children. How, how, could, how could Herod do such a thing? I want to let you know it wasn't a big deal for Herod. It was business as usual. And Herod wasn't that different from the other political rulers of his day. We don't get this account in other sources, which means it wasn't that out of the ordinary in, in that day and time. Also, when you look at how people work, how political leaders work, the idea that you would work to eliminate, to knock off anybody who threatened your power, that was pretty standard operating procedure for rulers. In fact, up until recent centuries, that was pretty standard operating procedure that you saw uh, what you wanted, you went and got it. Alexander the Great would have had no problem doing that. Napoleon would have had no problem doing that. Uh, recently, uh, when uh, a couple of years back, when the situation, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine happened, I remember we were all talking about how bad Vladimir Putin was. And I heard a political commentator and they said, you know, uh, Putin seems like so offensive to all of us. 
But really, he's just old school. Napoleon would have no problem with what he's doing. No, no problem. Alexander the Great, no, no problem. That's, how, that's just how people used to operate. We just don't do it like that anymore, thankfully. But that's how, and that's, that's how King Herod was. King Herod wasn't necessarily more evil than anyone else. He was just ambitious and old school. He, he took out members of his own family if he thought they were working against him or had any ambition to replace him. He took them out. So he wasn't doing to this town anything he hadn't done to his own family. And here's what's sad. And here's what offends me about this story. Somewhere in his life, Herod made that decision. He made the decision that he would do anything he could to maintain his power, even if it meant taking out other people, even if it meant abusing other people. And he decided uh, that he would live his life simply to get himself as much as he could. And if you ever have the chance to journey to the Holy Land, you can travel up to his palace. And he, it's called Masada. He built it on a plateau. It's 1,300 feet above everything else. And you can look out from there and imagine how he just would have looked looked out and been so proud that he could survey all this land and that he ruled all the people of this land. And as Roman emperors came and went, he maintained his power. And Rome didn't like him. And the Jews didn't like him. But he didn't want to be liked. He wanted to be feared and respected. And he learned how to, to play that game. And he heard a lot of people playing that game. But here's what offends me. When God came to earth, only a very small number of people were around. Only a relatively extraordinarily small number of people actually got to experience it. Actually got to meet Christ during his life. Actually were in the know about his birth. And what bothers me is Herod was one of them. It bothers me that Herod had the chance to know about the Christ child because it could have worked differently, right? Remember the story of the wise men. What happens? God wants them to know about the birth and God, God wants them to come and worship and, uh, you know, adore this Christ. And, and we, 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 we love the wise men, Right? Uh, we, we, we love most of the people who heard that announcement. We, we love that Mary was the mother of Jesus. And we love that she wasn't a princess. We love that she was a parent because she's humble. And we love that the shepherds were there. We, we, we love that they were there because they're humble, ordinary, uh, working class people. And also we love them because they're so great for nativity pageants. Because as long as you have a bathrobe, you can be a shepherd. We just show up. We can have as many shepherds as we want. Um, we even, we, we love the wise men. We love them because they came from a different place. They were, they were kind of outsiders. They were quirky and, and they wore cool outfits. Or I really hope they wore cool outfits because that's how we always por portray them. Uh, you know, you got all these ordinary people in bathrobes. You need some bling uh, around the altar. And they provide that. And they give these expensive gifts. We, we love that. We hate King Herod. We hate him. And I hate that he knew about it. Because God could have worked it where he didn't know about it. 
God was talking to those wise men, remember? God showed them the star and then God appeared to them in a dream and told them, don't, let, don't talk to King Herod on your way out or he'll come get Jesus. Why didn't God tell them that beforehand? Why did God not tell them beforehand, hey, put away those fancy outfits? Hey, I want you to sneak around Jerusalem. I want you to wear the clothes that the Jewish people wear so nobody will know you're anybody special. I want you to sneak into Bethlehem. I want you to give these gifts to Mary and to Jesus. And I want you to get out. And I don't want Herod to ever know about it. Because God could have done that. And we wouldn't have to read this awful passage about genocide if God had done that. But God did something else. God allowed the wise men to go to Herod. And God gave Herod an invitation. In knowing about Jesus' birth, God gave Herod an invitation to change his ways. God gave Herod an invitation to turn around and to find power in a new place. And Herod couldn't do that. Herod had been so shaped over the years by might makes right, by lifting himself up, by putting other people down, that he, he couldn't do it. And here's what happened because of that. King Herod mistook God's invitation for a threat. He mistook this invitation to worship the Christ child for a threat. And how different would history be if he had accepted the invitation to follow the Christ child, to uh, live by God's ways. I can't even imagine, I, I, I don't even imagine, can't have trouble imagining how the rest of this book would have been written if Herod had made that decision, had accepted that invitation. It is phenomenally interesting to think about how history would have been different. In fact, somebody could do a drama on an alternative history if Herod had accepted the invitation. And if you get somebody to make a TV show out of that and you put it on Netflix, it'd be awesome. But he didn't. He didn't. And so we know how history goes because he didn't. Here's why that's important. For us, our personal histories will be dramatically different based on the fact of do we experience God's invitation as a threat or do we accept it as an invitation? Because here's the thing. Many of us, not all of us yet, but many of us, we've had that moment of hearing Jesus' invitation and we've accepted it. Some of us at camp, right? You have the campfire and something about fire is just awesome, right? And you're looking into the fire and you're singing songs and the preacher preaches and you go up and you give your life to Christ and it's something you always remember and it's a rock on which you base your life and every bit of that is real. But here's the other bit. Even once you do that, you still have to live the rest of your life. And for the rest of your life, every day when you get up, you'll have to answer the question of, am I living by Jesus' ways? Am I living according to Jesus' calling upon my life? Because remember, your life is not your own. It has been bought with a price. Or am I saying that I follow Jesus and then doing my own thing? And the problem is the longer you're in church, the better you get at doing that without anybody else knowing it. And we all have to answer that question every day. I have to answer that question every day. 
I know how often I'm tempted to do things that aren't in line with Christ's teachings that no one will ever know about. Treat people in ways that aren't up to Jesus' standards. Make life easier for me by making life harder on you without you ever knowing it. We all have those temptations. And every day we have to say, how am I going to use my power? Will it be like King Herod or will it be like Jesus? You see, King Herod mistook privilege for power. That was his problem. He, he thought that power came from privilege. King Jesus, on the other hand, demonstrated his power by giving up his privilege. That's what he did. And it's very interesting when we look at Jesus' life when he becomes an adult. Herod's the big guy in town. He's the show. He's, he's where the power lies. And Jesus largely ignores him. Now, by Jesus' life, the King Herod of his birth has passed away. And King Herod's son, also known as King Herod, is on the throne. So the King Herod you hear about at Jesus' birth and at his crucifixion, uh, that's a father-son duo. Well, Jesus doesn't spend most of his time in Jerusalem. He doesn't go up and have a summit meeting with King Herod to hash out how the land should be governed or to confront Herod about his misdeeds. Jesus ignores him. Jesus finds King Herod boring. Says, oh, you have all these power, this power. You have all these chariots. You have soldiers. You have the power to collect taxes. Hasn't every ruler? Like, how boring. We've, we, we've seen all this before. We'll see all this again. And Jesus spends his time in the small towns of Galilee with the humble people. Uh, for most of his days, he spent time there rather than in the halls of power in Jerusalem. And when you change from seeking the power of privilege to being willing to give up your pr privilege in order to share the power of God's love, it changes everything about your story, about your personal history and about the history of others. Some of you are in small groups or Sunday school classes that are studying the book that goes along with our sermon series. Uh, it's called Unlikely Advent by uh, Reverend Rachel Billups. And she tells this story at, of something that happened at her church. They got involved uh, with a prison ministry that helped people who had been incarcerated uh, become uh, reintroduced to society. And it was a very successful ministry that those who went through it had a, you know, a less than 5% rate of returning to prison, which is just, if you know those stats, that's phenomenal. So one day she decided she was going to ask one of the uh, men who was a leader in that ministry uh, to come and uh, share his testimony at her church. And if, if you read the book, uh, his name was Stan. Uh, if you haven't read the book, his name was still Stan. Uh, but uh, Stan comes to her church and gets up there and she quickly realized that she had bitten off more than she could chew. And that, that was because she uh, uh, didn't know his full story. So he gets up and he shares about how as a young man he was angry and frustrated and he got into petty crime and he got into substance abuse and then he got in a difficult situation and he killed somebody. She had no idea he'd killed somebody. So during the service, I think she's like texting her husband going, please Google cheap moving companies because I think they're going to kick me out for having this guy speak. Well, he comes and, and he, he shares what happened to him. So young man, early 20s, goes into a high security prison uh, where they're not always able to protect the prisoners from each other. And it's a pretty dangerous place where it's easy to get abused. 
So he decides he needs to have a group that will look out for him. So he joins a gang called the Aryan Brotherhood. The Aryan Brotherhood, as you know, is a neo-Nazi white supremacist gang. And he said it was full of angry, violent men. And he was an angry, violent man. So he fit in well there. And he actually rose up through the ranks of, of leadership there in, in, in that organization. And then one day, he, he had done something and he was in solitary confinement. They came and got him out because his mother had come to the prison to visit him and by law, they couldn't refuse her visit. Well, they bring him up to talk to his mother and if you've done those visits, you know, you go up and you have the thick glass and you've got the telephone and that's, that's how you visit. He visited with her and apparently he said before when she'd visit, she was just trying to encourage him. And, and this time she just kind of had enough and he was talking to her and she basically said, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to grow up? When you were 13 years old, you were angry and you were frustrated. You were mad at the world and everything was somebody else's fault. And because of what somebody else did to you, you could just do whatever you want. She said, you're in your 30s, you're in prison, but you're still acting that way. You're still mad at the world and you still think everything is everybody else's fault. And he said, mom, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm a leader in the gang here. I have power in this setting. I'm a feared man. I'm doing well. And she said, no, you're not. You're a scared 13 year old. That's who you are. And he realized she was right. He thought he was big. He thought he was bad. He thought he was tough. Internally, he's a scared kid. And he began to become open to changing his life. Well, someone invited him to a weekend Christian retreat. And they said, hey man, if you can keep yourself out of solitary long enough, you can participate in this weekend worship and Bible retreat that they're having in the prison. And he, it was actually another member of the Aryan Brotherhood uh, who invited him to that. But he went and he gave his life to Christ. And things started to change. But as you know, when you give your life to Christ, everything doesn't always change instantaneously. And he still had all these problems. He still had all this anger. He still had this tendency to violence. But he had men who were mentoring him. And gradually over time, Jesus transformed his heart. And he became less violent. And he became more compassionate. And he became less entitled and less hateful and less resentful. Well, he meets this man in his Bible study. This man's named Lee. You know, the Aaron Brotherhood, quite racist. Well, Lee's a black man. And Lee shares with Stan his story about how he grew up angry and how he grew up uh, with substance issues and how that pushed him into becoming violent and into this prison. Well, Stan talks to Lee and Stan hears his own story and Lee's story. And as you know, when you hear your own story and someone else's story, it hits pretty deep. It hits pretty hard. And you often form a pretty deep connection. Well, uh, Stan and Lee become close friends. And as Stan was getting his life back together, he was keeping up with people on, on the outside. And they were beginning to, to see his change. And even while in prison, uh, Stan's family and his former friends re realized that he'd become a very different person. He actually married a Christian woman who was on the outside while he was still in prison. And then while he's in prison, um, he learns that his buddy Lee has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he knows from 
the development of the cancer and from the treatments available that Lee's probably not going to make it. So he has to be Lee's cellmate so he can take care of Lee. So this man who was a racist, this man who was a neo-Nazi, this man who was violent starts living with a man of another race and he starts helping that man brush his teeth. As Lee got sicker, he would help Lee get dressed. He'd help him go to the bathroom and he'd help him put his pants on. That's not privilege, that's service, right? That's finding your power from giving up your privilege from a different place, from the heart of Christ. And then when Lee got so sick that he couldn't stay in the prison anymore, he had to go to a separate hospital. Well, this meant that Stan couldn't be there to take care of him. So Stan's wife on the outside legally adopts Lee so that legally she will have the right to be in the hospital with him and to take care of him during the last days of his life. When you start finding your power in giving up your privilege for the sake of others rather than pushing others down to maintain your privilege, it's amazing what can happen when you find your power in the unlikely power that we see in Christ who gave up the privilege of heaven for all the pain of earth. Well, here's how that's described. What happened in Stan's life is described in great detail uh, by the Apostle Paul in his book to the Philippians. We're going to pick up with the second, second chapter. Listen to these words because these were Paul's words for Stan and these are Paul's words. These, these would be God's words for King Herod that King Herod ignored and God's words for each of us. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we see in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, as something to be abused for his own powerful purposes, but emptied himself? took the form of a servant and became obedient even to death on a cross. What's it mean to live by that power? That, that, that power that causes us to shudder with fear when we look at the manger because we wonder what claim could this child in the manger have upon my life and am I willing to live out that claim, to live out that calling? Well, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it better than most. Some of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a German theologian uh, in the uh, decades before the Nazis. And as the Nazis came to power, he refused to bend his knee to their way. And so actually one of the horrible things of history is that most of the Christian churches in Germany, they put the Nazi flag on stage. And they would walk up and they would preach the gospel of the child born in a manger. And then they would preach the ideology of Nazism. And they got to the point they couldn't even see the incongruence. They could not see the incongruence because they had rationalized it away because it was easier for them. But he was part of a small church movement called the Confessing Church. And they, they, they wouldn't do that. 
And because of that, his life was in danger. And he came from Germany to the United States and he learned and he taught in our seminaries here. And then he had a decision to make. He could have stayed here where it was safe. He could have stayed here and helped raise money uh, for the cause. But he chose to go back. He chose to go back to be a leader on the ground in Germany of the church. Uh, and the church particularly that was resisting the, the Nazis. And because of that, he was put in a concentration camp. And he was intentionally executed a brief time before that camp was liberated by Allied soldiers. He understood what it was to give up your privilege in order to love others. And this is what he says about Christmas. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Who ever finally lays down all the power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger? Whoever remains lonely, lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Can you look at the manger and can you see that? Because you see, King Herod built this uh, castle on a hill and he wanted, pe he wanted people to look up to him so he could look, look down at them. Uh, but if you want the child in the manger in your life, you have to look up to him. And you can't look up at God while you're looking down on others. We all have to decide how we will handle that question of where will we find our power? And if we will find our power in the unlikely power that the world has discovered in Jesus, it will change our stories and it will change history. It will change our personal histories into something that isn't boring but is borderline unexplainable, borderline miraculous. Because when that kind of love comes into the world, nothing stays the same. When that kind of love comes into your heart, it won't stay the same. So I want to invite you to spend a moment praying with me that because we have been here today, because we have opened the scriptures, because we have gazed upon the manger, that our hearts will go away different than when we came. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are overwhelmed by your goodness and your love. It thrills our hearts and sends us joy. And it also strikes fear in our souls because we wonder if we could ever follow your ways. If imperfect people like us could ever have a place in your kingdom. And yet you have opened your arms to us. You have given up the glories of heaven for the pain of earth that we might know your presence, your power, and your eternal kingdom. So we ask today, O oh Lord, whether for the first or the thousandth time, that you would accept us as we seek to lay our lives before your manger, as we give our lives over to you. Show us, O oh Lord, how we might give up our reputation, our honor, our arrogance, our vanity, our individualism, all that we might be a part of your kingdom, which it was in the beginning and will have no end. Your kingdom for which you came to earth and gave your life. Your kingdom in which you have prepared a place just for us. Oh Lord, do not let us mistake your invitation to the kingdom 
for a threat to our power. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United, and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org. We also invite you to download and enjoy our daily devotional podcasts presented by the pastors and members of Concord United. Finally, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast so that others can discover it and benefit from it.